Hello, and welcome to Talking Law, the podcast where you can hear barristers, judges, solicitors, managing partners, and more talk about their careers and lives in law. I'm Sally Penny, MBE. I'm a barrister at Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester, the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers and the founder of Women in the Law UK. This episode is supported by CBRE, the leading global provider of commercial real estate services and investments. Find out more at cbre.com. Before you meet today's guest, a reminder, the tickets for the Women in the Law UK annual dinner and conference this November 2022 are on sale now. Please visit womeninthelawuk.com for details. I'd also love you to watch my recent TED Talk. Please head to TED.com from the 8th of July and search for Sally Penny. Today, I'm talking law with Banky Odunaiki, Executive Director and Head of EMEA Legal at CBRE. Banky has also been recognised as one of the UK's 21 Women Who Will for Driving Innovation in Diversity and Inclusion, according to the Obelisk Report which was in partnership with the Next 100 Years Project. I started by asking Banky to give me a bit of background about CBRE, what the organisation does and her role within it. I head up CBRE's EMEA legal team for the CBRE's advisory business. I am based in London and I look after our operations across 27 countries with the support of a, a team of 57 phenomenal lawyers. I am a wife, I am a very proud mum of two, and I recently, well, it's not recent, because he's now um, 17 months old, uh, but I became a dog owner during lockdown. I've got a Jackapoo, who's a total rascal, I tell you, but he is such a fantastic addition to our family. I can't believe we went so long without without having a dog. They'll tell you a bit about CBRE. Um, CBRE is the leading global provider of commercial real estate services and investments, so you'll find us in over 100 countries, wow. providing a multifarious range of real estate services, right from valuations through to brokerage and ESG consulting. But we're not just about the brick and mortar. You know, for anyone who's looking from the outside into the organization, Sally, I can you know, confidently say that right at the heart of our organization is our corporate responsibility, right? And the rationale for that or, 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 or the way that we ensure that that stays front and center of our operations is we've got our what we call the rise values which is basically sort of um, written into the dna of how we operate as, as an organization and rise stands for uh, respect integrity service and excellence and so if you take respect for instance respect is it's not just respecting yourself it's respecting your colleagues respecting your clients respecting the community, respecting the world in which we live in, giving back to the, to the world. Um, and then there's integrity. You know, I mean, if you spoke to my kids, they tell you, mom always says, <laughs> you know, you've got to do the right thing even when no one's watching, because that's the way I yes. define integrity to them. And I, that's, that's pretty much at the epicenter um, of our operations as a business. And then there's service. Um, you know, it's all about being the servant leader. You're, you're a leader and you've got to, you know, take stock of what it is that um, the, the people around you, the community around you needs um, and your employees, your workforce, what is it that they need and really putting your all in, into doing the best that you can in providing the service that um, you have obviously been retained to provide. Um, yes. And then that leads on to excellence and excellence being as I just said now, what's the point of doing a job if you're not going to do it well? So it's at the heart of our day-to-day operations is, is ensuring that we really are, you know, front runners and that we are constantly looking at innovative ways to do better. We're constantly looking at how we can train up our, our workforce to, to be the best um, that they can be. So that in a nutshell is, is me and is a bit about CBRE. Well, it's really fascinating because, you know, as I'm interviewing you here, sitting, seeing your, you know, the executive um, <laughs> head of legal, the executive director head of legal, legal at TBRE, you know, hugely successful. But I wonder if we can talk about your career journey and a little bit of how you got to where you are, really. Because I noticed in my research that you started life 
at Gotchalks, which is a Gotchalks, which yes. is a firm in, in Hull. Yes, and a friend of mine, Nikki Patterson, would would say it's Gotchalks in, <laughs> in the kind of Yorkshire accent. So I'm not sure I'm saying it correctly. But how did life start there? So, for instance, yes. you know, how did you get your training contract? Was it easy? How how did you start in Gotchalks in Hull? It's been it's been quite a journey, Sally, yeah. and I've got to tell you, I don't feel like I've quite got to my destination yet. In fact, I feel like I'm still very much at the beginning of my of my journey. Mm. Um, but securing the training contract was not easy. Okay, now um, why? I think it's not. It's generally not easy for anyone because I just feel like I got a plethora of reject letters. Mm. Um, and when I was applying for my training contract, of course, you start applying when you're in your second year of university. Yes. I had thought, well, I want to apply to city firms because, of course, you know, you read, you hear you mm. all about the, sort of the Rolls Royce training that you get in the city, et cetera, comparative to within the region. But I also didn't want to place all my eggs in one basket. So I was looking at the city. Yes, my focus was predominantly on the city, but I was also looking regionally. For me, it was an element of, I couldn't quite see, you know, when you hear about the glass ceiling yes. and why you're getting the rejects, I couldn't quite see why, you know, for me, it was a brick wall. It was just, I was, you know, I had good grades. Um, mm. I had a good CV. I had done all the training that was required for interviewing, et cetera, but I just wasn't getting past that initial application stage. And the one time that I got an inkling as to why I was obviously up against such an uphill struggle yeah. uh, was at a, a time when I was you know, applying to a city firm um, with one of my friends who is um, an American white guy. Yeah. And he and I both required a work permit at the time, d- despite the fact that I had lived in the UK many years, studied in the UK at the time that my training contract w- would have started. I would have required a work permit. Um, so he was in the same boat. So were my Australian friends at university. Anyway, um, we'd both applied. And typically as a student, you know, what you do, you sort of review each other's forms, making sure you put the best foot forward and everything's looking uh, ship shape for, for the application. Yeah. And of course, we submitted. And he got a letter inviting him for an interview. I waited a couple of weeks later and I got a letter that was actually one of the most detailed reject letters I had received. And it basically said, um, you know, really great application, great CV, very impressive. However, we cannot progress your application because you require a work permit. Um, And we would have to prove that there are no UK or EEA students who were suitable for the role. And I thought, okay, well, that's fair enough. But hang on a second, you know, I mean, you would have thought that this firm would have actually just stopped to think, well, let's just look at where we're getting the applications from. The same university, white guy, he's American and he um, gets invited for interview. And actually he went on to get a training contract and they did get him um, a a work permit. Now, you know, the thing is, in that instant, when I got my letter, of course, I was distraught. Yeah. Um, And you know, we were sort of thinking, well, do you do you write to the firm or do you ring them up and say, this is unfair? I know someone who has managed to secure an interview despite requiring a work permit like myself. But you just don't do that. I mean, this is yeah. my pal. I mean, you know, the thing is, if he slipped through the net undetected, I was like, you go and run. <laughs> yes. You go and run. You do the best you can and go and go and be successful, right? Mm. Um, so there was no... There was no challenging it at that stage. It was more a, a reality for me, Sally, that, um, okay, this is, there's, there's an element of unfairness here. And that was the only time I tend not to play the race card, but yeah. that was the one time I thought, okay, this is a little blatant now. Yes. Um, but, you know, hey, I cried. I wiped my tears and I marched straight to WH Smith to get some more um, embossed paper to print out my CV you yeah. know, you dust yourself off and you just keep going. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did. And what I did as well at that stage was I just re-strategized and I thought, look, okay, there's been a lot of focus now on the city, perhaps not, perhaps let me look at the regional law firms. But at the same time, I didn't want to apply to just any odd outfit that called itself a law firm because I knew the quality of training that I wanted. Yes. And I didn't want my CV scattered about and you know, through that, you know, your brand gets diminished. 
So I focused again on, you know, what, what are the top caliber law firms? And of course, um, Goschalks, I was obviously went to university in Hull and Goschalks is an outstanding, outstanding till this day law firm um, in, in Hull. And I had applied for their um, vacation scheme. I got selected for that. When you have that kind of opportunity, you, you make the most of it. You leave a lasting and you hope that you leave a lasting, a good impression um, yeah. with the people that you meet. Um, and of course, then I went on to apply for the training contract and I got my letter. I got my letter offering me a training contract eventually. I mean, I was, it was shock. I mean, I got that when I opened the letter. <laughs> But actually, I've got to tell you this before I tell you about opening the letter from Goschalks. So I got so many reject letters that a member of my family, one of my relatives, actually would hand me my post in the morning and go, here are your reject letters. Because it actually became a joke, right? (laughs) I know we're laughing now, but We're laughing now, but honestly, at the time, it was like, oh my gosh, all right, okay, let me open the, let me just see that they actually spell my name right. Yes. rejecting me. Um. See, I, I um, got my letter from Goschalks. I was so thrilled, um, but also very fearful. I, I yeah. thought I rang up and, and I said, you know, can I speak to the training principal? Because I, I, you know, I was thinking, oh my gosh, have they made a mistake? Yes, they, you know, imposter syndrome. I know. Yes, exactly. Is this for real? Is this for real? But at the same time, you know, you don't want to be speaking to the training principal and, and you know, sounding doubtful that you've yes. been successful, right? So you have to find the right balance. But he detected it and he said to me, he said, you've got to be super proud of yourself. Um, We've had over 300 applicants. We only interview 10 odd um, and we only offer a training uh, contract to three every year. Uh, So you've got to be super proud of yourself. Go and enjoy, go and spend time with your family, go and celebrate with your family. You've done well. Um, And I just, the weight that lifted off my shoulders. And I was so happy, Sally. I actually slept with my letter under my pillow. That that's how. That's oh, how. I fell asleep with it in my hands. Woke up in the middle of the night. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna tuck this under my pillow and just wake up and hope it's still there and it's still real. And I've got my training contract. But yeah, I had a great training um, at yeah. Goschalks. It was very very detailed. I had two seats in in employment law. My second seat in employment law was a mix of employment and corporate. And that's where I got an insight to um, pensions um, because I'd done some, I was supporting the M&A, the corporate team, and then obviously embroiled in some M&A activity, but they're talking about Section 75 debt. I'd been to some conferences where um, they touched on and, and, you know, learned a little bit, got an insight to the world of pensions. And I found it fascinating, the geek that I am. And so I, at that point in time, was thinking, okay, I, I really do want to go and trial I want to go and see if I can be a pensions lawyer. I haven't got the training as a pensions lawyer because it's so niche. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of focus on it being within the cities. So anyway, fast forward to qualifying. Uh, Gostrocks offered me a role in commercial property. But even then I thought, I don't want, I'm not sure I want to be a commercial property lawyer. Just I, right now it's pensions. That's mm-hmm. what's really interesting me. And so I you know, got in touch with a recruitment agent and I said, is it possible that without having any kind of training in, yeah. in the world of pensions that I w- would be considered for an NQ role. And the agent obviously thought I was a complete nutter because, you know, it's, it's a very <laughs> yeah. niche, niche yeah. area of law. Yeah. You're coming from Hull and you want to be a pensions lawyer? Are you kidding me? But anyway, I said, yes. I said, I do. I said, you know, can you just explore what's out there? Um, and I got interviewed by a handful of firms of the two that had offered me a place, I went with Shoesmiths. Yeah. I ended up with Shoesmiths in Mills and Kings. Uh, again, really, really phenomenal uh, team that I worked with there. Uh, but then within a year, I was headhunted um, by Adel Shores. Adel Shores, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. There's your, there's your magic circle. So, you know, <laughs> how onwards and upwards. I Absolutely. Mean, no Absolutely. rejection there. And exactly. And no syndrome. That's right. Wow. That's right. So I got, I got headhunted by Adelshaws and, you know, ended up being um, a member of their foundation team, a foundation a pensions team in London. Yeah. And again, another really, you know, excellent experience because actually when I joined the team, I joined a team of, you know, they were all female partners, right? Very, very 
powerful, influential, inspirational women. Yes. So tomorrow, there was a lot I learned from each of the partners at, at Adult Shores that, that I hold uh, uh, to heart. And, um, and yeah, so the career progressed from there. I was there shy of five years before I made the move mm. um, in-house. Uh, wow. To Marcia. So that was, that was a very big leap. Yes, Sally, it was, um, you know, when you, when you're considering the, well, should I, should I do this? I always saw myself as a general counsel, to be honest. Did you? I, yes, I always, and I think it might be because of my, you know, I come from a very, um, my background, my family, very entrepreneurial. My father set up his own company that eventually became listed. And he was always a very entrepreneurial mindset. And I always yes. thought, you know, I'll probably end up being his lawyer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> working for his company. I mean, that never happened, but it was just, you know, I always saw myself ending up as a, as a GC working closer with, with a business. Yes. And so when um, the opportunity came for me to, to obviously, you know, step into in-house environment, I was a little sort of, I'll say a little skeptical, but I knew that my, my true passion was to get closer to the business world. And when, you know, it was just a matter of taking that leap of faith. And I have to tell you, I haven't looked back since. It was, wow. It's just been a phenomenal, phenomenal ride, phenomenal journey. A great time at Mercer as well. And now uh, with CBRE. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a really interesting journey because, you know, um, of course, this our well, your branch of the profession of our profession, the solicitors uh, and private solicitors are losing a lot of excellent counsel. I use the word losing loosely to yeah. uh, you know businesses having general counsel uh, and in-house counsel. You know, it's very competitive now, and, and law firms tell me that you know we're losing. So I, I just wondered, what is your average day? entail really you know what's yeah. the average day for you because it just sounds really like glamorous and sexy <laughs> yeah yes yes well you know th there are some glamorous days and then there are days where it's just I feel like I've been dragged through the mud um but you know the the, the way I describe it is it, it's it's the equivalent of being a GP right but for an organization so you're there to offer preventative care you're there to offer diagnosis you're there to offer you know whether it's it's training and education and then you're you're there of course to to treat the ailments um, yes. and and of course to av avoid um, a, a reoccurrence so my role is is multifarious the stuff that yes. crosses my desk is so varied um that there's stuff that yes, requires technical ability, technical knowledge, good knowledge of the law. And there's others that's just general commercial, you know, common sense yes. uh, that you've, yes. got to, you've got to apply to, to the challenge. Um, but what makes my role particularly exciting is the fact that, you know, I deal with multiple jurisdictions. I can get through my day and I've spoken to about 10 different countries, right? Wow. And I know, I know. I mean, it's just it, that, that for me, is is really what keeps me going it's that is that opportunity to be able to connect on that cross-border basis you know sometimes the conversations are very light-hearted sometimes yeah. they're actually more detailed and I'm having to you know either work with our local council yeah you know, to deal with the matters or actually for the countries where we don't have local council you know working with the business to appoint local council to deal with the, the different issues but you know, with every matter, you learn something new, you learn something, you get an insight to the culture, right? Not just yeah. the business culture, but the societal um, yeah. um, expectations. And so it's very exciting. I suppose that's the glam um, of the role. <laughs> but as anyone well, will is. tell you, there's, there's always good and bad days, right? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And interestingly, you know, you still have to use counsel here in England yes. and all in, in all those countries. You're still using law firms or city law firms which I find quite interesting because actually you're a client and yes. they have to keep looking at their service levels which is a really exciting part of it you know you don't use them all the time of course but of course you, you still use them which I find fascinating let, let me just move on a bit and talk about the d word you and I are two black women different branches of a profession there are many of us you know um, there are six QCs, as we know now from the stats, and I could probably count in my hands and toes uh, the number of black 
male, let alone female heads. So I wondered, what are you doing at CBRE? I mean, do you care about diversity? Is diversity a passion of yours? But what are you doing at CBRE about it? Yeah, well, you know, it's an absolute passion of mine. Mm. Um, not just because I am a black woman with African origins. It is because I suppose for me, it's my my drive to enter the law was always centered on equity and fairness and 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 just and justice. And so. When I look at um, you know the the sufferings that a certain demographic endures purely because they look a certain way, they sound a certain way, they come from a certain background, yeah, you know, really it really riles me that you know anyone would have to you know be shortchanged in life because of 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 who they just naturally are, yeah. Um, and so at CBRE, D and I really very much is. Um, um, one of the key uh, driving factors, um, certainly within our legal operation, but also as a global organization. And I'll, I'll, I'll share a few things that we do within um, my, my immediate team. So within EMI, and I'll focus first on, on the UK team. So one of the things that we've done is to revamp our internship program, because I got together with, with, with a team of our lead lawyers in the UK, and we said, look, how are we going to be more diverse in our selection of those who intern with us? Because we want to do away with nepotism. You know, sometimes you get individuals who come in for the work experience and they don't really bother, you know, and, and it's just, you know, they're just there because their uncle knows someone and, and you know, and they don't really make that much of an effort. And, and of course, it, unfortunately, what that means is that internship, that time that my team have invested in, in trying to, you know, get them the experience yes. becomes wasted. It's futile. And because of, I think a number of people in my team know how challenging it is to, to, to get even an internship, but particularly yeah. with an internship with a, with a global organization like ours, there are people out there who will bite your hand off for yes. the opportunity. Yeah. So we said, right, we're going to scrap all of that. We're going to try the blind CV route. And so actually this year, unfortunately, sadly due to, to COVID, we weren't able to launch it sooner. But so this year, we're really excited that we've now come up together with um, support from our talent acquisition team with a selection process whereby we don't get to see your CV. What we do is we send out, we advertise the internship to you know um, um, a handful of, of, of universities. We get a whole load of applicants and then those applicants all get a standard set of questions, right? right. Everyone gets the same questions. Mm. And then uh, what we have is to have, I suppose, a grading grading process where you know members of our legal team will review the responses that are submitted and and, and allocate a grade right yeah. based on some set questions right yes. and how we feel that the person has responded in response to that but particularly the focus is around can this be a mutually beneficial time that we're both spending you coming into the organization and us obviously investing time in, in giving you the experience yeah. um and so, you know, completely anonymized at this stage, um, obviously, those who then become successful, who are the highest scorers, are then interviewed. Um, and from the, from the people that we interviewed, we select two individuals who come to intern with us. And it's only at that stage that we even bother with or that we intend to even perhaps at that stage, then ask for the CV so you can see yeah. what universities they're coming from. But we, we just wanted to make it an even playing field, right? And so that's one of the key initiatives that we've taken up within um, certainly the UK legal team. And depending on how that pans out, you know, the idea is to look into ways in which we can roll it out across the EMEA region. Um, and another thing that we, um, we, we've done in the UK, and, and this I've done in partnership with my colleagues in, so CBRE has got three operations. You've got the advisory, you've got GWS, and you've got investment management. And yes. so a couple of years back, I set up our UK legal um, DNI task force. And the objective of that was, you know, there's a lot of strength in numbers, right? So if we all get together, I mean, we're all CBRE anyway. Yeah. But if we all come together and you're all obviously passionate about changing the DNI landscape within the legal industry so let's all just powerhouse all working together towards this goal mm. um and so we were looking we're exploring you know what can we do to really draw emphasis to our passion uh, towards dei 
and also the expectations that we have of our vendors. Um, and that led us to, and I've done some work with Interlaw Diversity. I sit on the um, Apollo Leadership Institute on the board there with, with Daniel Winterfeld. Daniel, yeah. You yeah, know, former guest. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's he's just really is phenomenal. And so, um, you know, he, he'd spoken to me about the model diversity survey. And I just thought, well, absolute no brainer. I mean, this yeah. is a survey that's rolled out again, that element of uniformity. Everyone's getting the same sort of questions and we're collecting data. And the reason we're collecting that data is because the intention is to utilize that data to have informed conversations Absolutely. about DEI. Because yeah. we've been talking about um, changing the landscape for a long, long time, Sally. And, and everyone, I mean, I don't know one single law firm out there that would say they, they're not passionate about DEI. Well, okay, great. Let's see how that translates to not just the intake, the graduate level, but mm-hmm. actually right through your organization to partner, to, to equity partner, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... That was one of the what you know the model diversity survey was the you know the the the, the one area that as as a as a cohort we thought really passionate we felt really passionate about and in fact our colleagues in the US had also already signed up to it and we they had a obviously their own suite of firms who had also you know um, um, signed up and were obviously sharing their data and yes. I think this helps to get away from you know Sally the uh, you know that piece of you get all these beautiful brochures. Um, from law firms that tell you all about the DNI initiatives that they're, yeah. you know, engaged with and how they're making a difference, et cetera. But, you know, you read through all these very beautiful things and then you get to a point where you're like, okay, but so what, how, how does that really translate to, you know, the numbers and to retention, Absolutely. et cetera. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, we've, we've got to ensure that we are being clear about what our expectations are. So when I speak to, you know, our vendors, I say, like, I want to see a diverse team working on this uh, project. I didn't just want it to be from inception. I want to see that right through to fruition. It's a diverse team that's supporting us. That's a message that, you know, is, is um, it resonates across, right across our legal operations. Larry Midler, who who, who is our general counsel, who sits at the helm, is very, very passionate about DE&I. And it's not, you know, he's not all just about the talk. He means business, right? And you can see it. You can see it within his organization. You can see it within um, um, and the team, the, the very diverse range of individuals who are leaders within his org. Um, and then as a business, you know, we, we have, uh, certainly the UK business has been doing very much. I'm going to focus on the UK because I'm based in the UK, but oh, totally, there are lots totally. of initiatives that are rolled out globally. But, you know, in the UK, we've partnered with um, Career Ready. Um, mm. I don't know if you know about them, but they basically are, you know, they, they're, they're an operation that supports young individuals, with career placements and basically it's you know offering things like mentoring masterclasses, workshops and, and I believe that we're going to have you know I think we already had our first intake of placements uh, from career ready um, and within our organization itself you know we've got six diversity networks we've got an ability network we've got the reach network which is race um, ethnicity and we've got the faith network women's network family network we've got the proud network um and you know this is just you know these are groups and subgroups within our organization that really spearhead and and drive that message there's so many different pillars of diversity equity and inclusion absolutely you know as an operation we want to make sure that we're covering every ground that we possibly can one other thing that i just really just share really quickly that we're doing within the legal team is to to create you know the safe space to have conversations around DNI, so we've we and this is launched in, in in the US. We've got the diversity dialogues, and right. basically we we um, we set up a Zoom call. We have a subject matter, and you know we maybe kick off with a little clip, or you know it might be um, a, a little snip of a you know of a video or a statement to prompt conversation, and that's been very engaging. You know, it's it's interesting to hear people's thoughts course you've got then the diversity of thought but always it's not a a must attend it's it's a platform for those who are happy to come and engage in those conversations and we found it really really fruitful really um, that we're actually looking to roll it out across EMEA as well which is fantastic I mean at the heart of a lot of these because my other passion 
is allies. You see, yes. you, 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 you mentioned several people who were driving this at the helm of it, in addition to, but we can't drive anything, can we, without allies? And it sounds like, you know, I, I don't like this term and I don't use it, you know, the pale, stale male. I don't use it. I prefer to use the term wham, which isn't my phrase. I've stolen it from Bree Hall Stevens, which is a white, heterosexual, able-bodied male. <laughs> and that's much better than isolating people. We all know why people use that phrasing. and I don't know where it originated from. But I want the wham to be my ally. I yeah. want the men to say, let's have diverse teams let's have diverse workforces uh, not just the men everybody else with a protected characteristic so it's wonderful to know that actually you've got great allies also who are there driving this but it leads me to ask you this though banky what's the difference between the us and the uk on diversity particularly in gcs mm. is it just the volume because they seem to be way ahead of us in yeah. what they do yeah um, i mean you know sally it's a difficult question and and when i've you know when i've had conversations around it you know some of the feedback that i've had is well you know it's the lack of critical mass you know yes. in the u.s they've got more um, black GCs or yeah, the, and more visible. diverse GCs. They're, they're very visible. Um, but I, I don't know. See, the thing is what I struggle with is, Sally, like, you, you know, you mentioned at the start of this, this call, you know, whether people are willing to engage with diversity, equity and inclusion matters, being a diverse person themselves. Yes. Um, and I don't know if the problem that we have is that, perhaps there's more of those individuals who are quite senior in organizations, but there's something that just makes them reluctant to fly the flag in the same way that you and I are more than happy to be front runners and to fly the flag and to say, look, you know, if this helps, if, if somebody out there needs to see a role model um, and can see that, you know, it's actually possible for you to be, you know, from a certain demographic, but still be successful if you remain if you're resilient, you really are passionate about, you know, your aspirations and your goals. Um, yeah. I suppose, you know, when I've thought about it, I've wondered, even for those who might not want to engage and who just want to sit quietly or just fade into the background, mm. you know, then I ask the question, well, why? What is it that makes you so uncomfortable to not want to be visible and to be vocal about increasing representation, representation that looks like you? Yeah. Right. Within organizations. And, you know, I have to be honest, you know, the mind boggles. I just yeah. um, I think I think there's been enough of a movement now. I think there is more of a movement now, Sally, mm -hmm. that we might get more people just coming out of that shell and, 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 and redoing more to be visible. But I, I, I really I really am stumped on that question. Mm -hmm. I do feel, though, that um, that something more needs to be done. There's more needs to be done to encourage those of us, because I'm sure Sally, I mean, you've interviewed a ton of people. Yeah. Um, and I mean, these are all individuals who are willing to be visible, hence being on your, on your podcast. But I suppose the question is, you know, how do we reach out to those who we know are there, but yeah. are, just aren't being visible? What is it that we can, I suppose it's maybe a question for the organizations themselves. I mean, if you've got someone who, and honestly, you know, should, should be flying the flag, you know, ask yourself why, what is it that makes them feel uncomfortable or that, you know, makes them unwilling to be that visible and that present? But also at the same time, we've got to just respect individuals. Okay? Oh, totally. totally. Everyone is entitled to not, you know, you know, no, just because you're black doesn't mean you have to engage, right? Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you have to engage. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, everyone is entitled to, to, to their own views and to their own opinions. And, and I suppose that's one thing that we've got to respect. You know, yeah, I mentioned respect yeah. earlier. So we've got to respect that too. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose my only point is, look, Mackenzie has published so many reports mm. on, you know, more diverse organisations being more profitable. Mm -hmm. If anything, that I'm always very keen when we talk about diversity, never mind the, the moral argument, you know, mm. how I would have thought organizations want to make more money. So it, I'm always yeah. just very interested and, and very keen, but I fully respect 
and that there is a bit of a pressure and there is a bit of a labeling you know if you're talking about the gender pay gap or you know you're talking about lgbtq plus issues mm -hmm. that you know you get labeled a bit and and maybe mm -hmm. that can make people feel as though i don't actually want to speak about the issue but yeah i, I think we owe it to our children don't we to be positive absolutely um wherever we can um well thank you everyone i'm sure apart from me are kind of uh desperate to work a cbre now we're here <laughs> yeah i'm like yeah can you get me a job um <laughs> somewhere too um so we all want to work there but what i want to ask you is about what you do for your well-being. You know, you've got a big job. You've got mm -hmm. two children. Mm -hmm. You don't drink tea or coffee. So how you're yes. getting through the day, I do not know. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm wondering what you do. You know, we're in a job with long hours, and burnout is high. Let's be truthful yes. about it. And I really care about our well-being, how we can all be better. So I just wonder what what do you do, or what would you like to do? For yeah, your, for your own well-being. Well, Sally, you know, I know that you love gardening because I've yeah, heard that you love I gardening. Do. Well, let me tell you this. Gardening is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> it is not for me. I tried my hand at gardening during lockdown and I've got to share this experience with you. So, you know, we planted some tulip bulbs and I thought, okay. okay, I can't wait for, you know, nature to take its course. And nature did take its course, but in a very different way. So we got a deer who came around to our garden and dug up my garden, ate up a good number of bulbs, and then came back the next day with his friends, <laughs> and they obliterated my garden, right? So I'm, here, I'm sitting, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, well, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. Okay, no bulbs. I'm going to go out to the garden center. I'm going to pick up some dahlias, some hydrangeas, and I forget what the name of the plant was, but it was a cone-shaped, very pretty-looking plant. <laughs> Um, and I planted them. I was out in the garden with my kids and I was thinking, yes, well-being. This is good. You know, gardening is a bit. Got myself some plant food and sprinkled them. Anyway, a couple of days later, I look out the window and I'm looking at plants that look like a skeletal version of what I purchased. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Oh, I step yeah. outside and it's slugs. Okay. Uh. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought... This is not for me. Gardening is an overrated experience. So um, I take my hat off to anyone who's got the patience for it. But I, I failed. I failed woefully. I mean, I've got potted plants. They, they'll do. They're inside. You know, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that works. That's about it for me. Um, but in terms of well-being, Sally, I have always been uh, very passionate about history and literature and the arts. Yeah. Yeah. So when I do have the time, um, I would go to theatre. I love the theatre. Um, yes. And... Uh, I love music, so musical theatre even better. Yes, um, but but also, if I don't get that chance, and of course, you know, we've had lockdown. It's only just now that the, the theatres are reopening. Yes. Um, I would sit and watch a period drama, the likes of The Crown, you know, Turn, um, and Medici. Yeah. You know, all those sort of shows. I I would I would sit down if I if I got a bit of downtime, I'd sit down and and, and I'd watch that. Um, and apart from that, it's, um, you know, I've got a, a bit of a sure-holic, Sally. So, um, you know, to, to my husband's uh, dismay. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, we, we, we all need something. I, I, I'm with you. Something. You sound like my sister. It's the shoes. It's the shoes. I, I do like, you know, when, when I, I feel like I've deserved my, to treat myself to a pair of shoes, I do love to, you know, to, to treat myself. Yeah. To, to, to a nice pair of shoes. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we need to get, you know, some Jimmy Shoes uh, in-house counsel law, you know, absolutely you know, shit or something, so we can get some treats of what's uh, what's coming up. <laughs> but you know, you mentioned uh, literature, and I wondered. We have a book club at Women in the Law, so we're always always yeah. looking for for books. But I wondered if you have a favorite book and why that you'd like uh, to share. And if you haven't, I want to ask you about a, a favorite legal character maybe perhaps it is it is a, a costume drama character yeah well you know the thing is I would say I used to be an avid reader but yeah. of course as things have got busier not just with work with the kids you know I've always found it's a little challenging to find that time to just you know zone in as I used to have zone in on a book so I feel like um, I, I cheat sometimes when I when I do the audio books, but it works, right? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But it's difficult. It's difficult for me to pick one that I would say is a favorite. I mean, you know, 
I suppose maybe cliche, but I would say that I absolutely loved Michelle Obama's Becoming. You know, that was great. And right now, I've actually gone to my desk. It's called The Culture Map by Erin Mayer. Ah. Uh, and this sort of, you know, gives you an insight to, you know, um, uh, the different cultures and, you know, just, you know, what to keep in mind when managing transactions on a cross-border basis and dealing with all these different cultures. But I have to tell you that maybe if I think back, the, the one book that really just, it was so gripping that every time I think of the book, I just, I shudder. It was the A Thousand Splendid Songs. Oh, I love um, that book. Like, oh my goodness, by Khalid Hosseini. I hope I've said his yes. name right. Uh, and it's just, you know, it was, you know, when you think about the two female uh, characters in that book and, yeah. um, and think about the times that we're in right now, you know, with, with um, the war, uh, um, I mean, obviously in Ukraine, but obviously the situation in Afghanistan, um, but all just the resilience of those two women and the fact that, they got together, they eventually helped each, each other out. And it was that there was so much power in their standing united to support each other through the adversity that they were unfortunately enduring yes. um, because of their status as women. And it was just, it was one of those books, that it was such a roller coaster. Oh my goodness. And, you know, towards the end of it, I don't want any spoilers, but it was the, do you remember the, the bit in the book about, um, uh, the Pinocchio, where she was supposed to have been taken to watch um, Pinocchio, her father was supposed to take her to watch oh, Pinocchio, yes. and then, and then he ended up putting, you know, a recording of it in the box. But obviously, sadly, she had died. But anyway, yeah. look, it's it's the whilst it's fictional, it's so easy for you to um, to to imagine the reality yeah. given what's going on in the world, what's going on in Afghanistan, what's going on in in Ukraine, and and, and other places where. You know, there's just so much that's happening that really isn't necessary. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. It, it is quite, a, it's a long time since I read that book. I think mm. it's worthy of a reread. A lighter question, which was the one I was asking you about a, a, a legal character. Are you an yeah. Alec Beale or oh. Jessica Fletcher? <laughs> or, I mean, there are loads of legal characters. I don't know why I often give that as an example. You know, <laughs> an example of the O'Bailey. But have you got a favourite fictional legal character? Well, you know, Sally, I know you interviewed Martin Shaw. Oh, and I, I loved him as Judge John Deed. He was brilliant. <laughs> he was so good. He was amazing. Uh, but I, I'm going to tell you, Sally, it's difficult to give you one. <laughs> I will have to give you the entire law firm of Cage. I think, was it Cage and, and Fish? Ali McBeal? Oh, I can't, rem- I can't remember that sort of I think of it was detail. Cage and Fish. But the, the reason I've gone for Ali McBeal is because, you know, sometimes you just need a good laugh. Yeah. Um, and that firm was just a firm full of absolute characters. And I remember just watching episode, uh, religiously watching episode after episode and just laughing my head off, but also just being fascinated about, you know, even more so about the law and, and, and um, you know, the powerful women. Uh, with yeah. the, within the show, uh, so yeah, I, it, it would have to be Cajun Fish. Oh well, I need to I need to watch those again, actually, or <laughs> or, ho- or hope to meet some of the Ali McBeals when I when I go to state and in September. Yes. it'll yeah, be yeah. really cool. Um, Banky, a, a more serious question, if I may. Um, what advice would you give to people entering the law now, whether mm-hmm. it's applications or skills? that they require because you know getting in the profession is just as tough as progressing in it often and I'm concerned actually that the side effects of COVID is that there's going to be less opportunities quite frankly so the competitions may be going to be stiffer and certainly Mm -hmm. stiffer for those who are coming from diverse backgrounds whether it's underrepresented groups or socially different groups or, or, or whatever it may be but that aside, you know, what advice would you have for perhaps young people entering the profession? Well, you know, I, I would say, I suppose this is something most likely they would have heard anyway, is to work hard. But I would say it's not just working hard at the academic, technical, you know, area of law, but it's also working hard at the human-centered skills, okay? So, you know, from my perspective, and certainly from my experience, um, you know, to be a successful lawyer, 
to have a good balance of both that sort of emotional intelligence and technical ability. Um, I think there's always been so much focus on just the academic side of the academia, but I do feel certainly within the in-house environment that um, lawyers have got to be able to adopt even more so now the human-centered, being able to empathize, being able to think laterally, um, and being able to connect with key stakeholders. So, you know, don't belittle that as part of your training. Uh, the other piece of advice I'd give is, you, of course, you've got to just be authentic, right? Be yourself. And I suppose I'd also say, Jane, don't, don't pigeonhole yourself and don't allow yourself to be pigeonholed. Be fluid, okay? So I've just shared with you my journey. I started out, you know, I was offered a role in commercial property. I wanted to do pensions. I did pensions. And now I'm doing, you know, corporate commercial law. And enjoying it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, um, have an open mind. Have an open mind as to where the law might take you because there's just so many, so many limbs to the law. You just never know where, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you might be home for now, but there might be another home that's even better and even more comfortable for you. So, so also just be, be versatile, um, I, I would say. And be resilient. Don't give yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, I was not ready to give up on the law. Um, I was so passionate, I wanted to do it. And another thing that I didn't wait for was to, I didn't wait to see a role model. I wanted to be that role model, right? So just that element yes. of be, be what you want to see, okay? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's having that confidence and that trust in yourself that you will land on your feet, right? So be happy to, to, be, out, to be the first, right? Be, be, be happy to be the first. And of course, when you, when you eventually get there, make sure you take time to pay it forward, okay, and, and support others who, who um, might be just at the start of that journey. And I'll wrap it up by saying just act with integrity because you just don't want to find yourself in a situation where dirt is uncovered or, you know, you've worked so hard and it's all dismissed because you've done something really silly and, and just, you know, um, uh, just, just not aligned with the standards uh, to which we, we really all should uphold ourselves. So always act um, with integrity. Yes. You know, that is fantastic advice. Well, given that that's entering the profession then, Banky, what about progress mm-hmm. in law? You know, the attrition rates are still not brilliant. I mentioned before about people going to be GCs. Actually, that's mm-hmm. a very successful career path. But still, there aren't still that many women leaders, whether it's in business or indeed in the law, you know, whether it's yeah. judges. Yeah. Um, the numbers yeah. are getting better and the JSE are doing brilliant work to increase that. But even as managing partners in the private sector, I just wonder if you got any advice about how to progress, you know, in the law. A bit of advice perhaps for women who have been in the job for a good while and wondering, oh, how do I progress, whether they're in the private um, sector or as uh, in the business sector as general counsel or in-house counsel? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of what I've already said, I would say, applies here as well. You know, the resilience element, you know, the sort of obviously being an all-rounder, okay, so adopting and really investing time in building your interpersonal skills, as well as your technical uh, capabilities. But I think we've got to a stage now where I feel, you know, women are, you know, always told you go and do this, go and do that, and then you can be more successful. That I actually, you know, my, my view is we need to flip things on their head and actually ask the organizations that women are working within, what are you doing to make this environment, make this organization more palatable for women and women's growth and success. And so to that, I'd be saying to the women who are in those organizations who are thinking, oh gosh, what else do I need to do is just just take a step back and apply a forensic analysis to what it is your organization needs to be doing better to promote and support women and then be vocal about it, right? You know, don't wait for somebody else to fix the situation for you. If you're sitting there wondering, you know, how can I progress and feeling that there are obstacles uh, to your being able to progress, you know, just take a step back and think about what what, what ways can I surmount um, these obstacles and, and how can I vocalize the issues uh, to my organization? How can I be that person who brings the change uh, to the organization? I think it's more, we need more of that than the, you know, women, you've got to go and do this, you've got to do that, you've got to, you know, think about work-life balance. Honestly, reality is work-life balance is different for everyone. 
Okay, everyone's got their own definition of balance, okay? And, 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 and just as everyone's got their own definition of well-being, right? What does it mean? What makes you feel comfortable, etc. So, I, you know, I certainly would say, you know, don't, don't hesitate to look out and speak up, right, where you feel that there might be flaws within your own organization. But also, I think what we need is to have women really supporting women, right? Because women who are in leadership positions, I think it really is incumbent in there to look out for and to help promote women who are, uh, you know, more junior or further down the ranks, uh, because we just know how challenging it is for them to get a seat at the table. So if you've got a seat at the table, I certainly think that you've got to, it, it really is become a duty that you create that seat at the table, that you advocate for women who are performing, because of course it's got to be meritorious. You're not just yes. going to throw any woman into into a boardroom, but it's it's being able to advocate for those who you know have and show potential uh, to, to succeed um, at that table. And I'll actually, maybe I'd, I'd, don't wait for a title to be a leader, yes. okay? Because everyone, every one of us has got leadership qualities. Everyone has got leadership skills. I've heard people say things like, oh my goodness, that's above my pay grade. And immediately I think, well, you're never going to get to that pay grade if you're thinking like that. You know, you've yeah. got to have that mindset of already wearing that badge or already holding that title that you aspire to, to receive and actually just leading by example. So yeah, that pretty much is an, in a nutshell is, is, is what I would advise women progressing in the law and just don't give up. Yes, yes, we still got a lot of um, challenges. Yes, you know, there's the glass ceiling. We see it in so many different places, but also we've seen that glass ceiling smashed. Yeah. So you just keep at it. Absolutely. Do you know, I love that. I'm like busy scribbling, scribbling down. So, and I've got a scratchy fountain pen. I especially like this. Don't wait for a title to be a leader. Because, you know, the Bar Council held an inaugural leadership kind of mentoring course last year. And uh, I was asked to be one of the mentors and I, and I did take it up eventually. But I was like, oh, but I'm not a leader. And the reason was that everybody else was a, a silk, a QC, mm -hmm. who were mentoring. Mm -hmm. And the woman who set it up, which was Brie Hall-Stevens and the um, Amanda Pinto, who was the, bar, the chair of the Bar Council at the time, was saying, well, you are a leader. Um, yes. And I thought, crikey. And so I love that. Don't wait for a title to be a leader amongst all that brilliant, brilliant advice. Now, Banky, just as we're getting close to the end, I want to ask you this. I know that you wanted to be a, um, a, a judge. When you work. Yeah, I know. I do my homework. Yeah, yeah. I'm good with research. Preparation. I always say that when I teach. <laughs> preparation, preparation, preparation. So I know that that was one of the passions that you, you had. And I'm a big advocate in getting people to think about applying to the judiciary. Mm. And I applaud everything that, as I say, the JAC have been doing to make that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wondered if... Really, the question is, what's next? Is still being a judge on the cast because of interesting. You've been doing your research. <laughs> yeah, of course I have. Well, uh, you know, um, yeah. What's next? Well, well, uh, being a judge, I, I'd share. Obviously, this is obviously from childhood. In fact, I got yeah. a nickname, the shortest judge, and you might hear some of my friends calling me SJ. I love uh, that because because I had. Um, you know, I was always sort of, you know, rooting for justice. <laughs> um, so that's, that's how I got the nickname. I'm not, I, I, I don't know that I'm still targeting, you know, ultimately being a judge. I think in terms of what next, as I said, I feel like I'm, I'm still at the start of my journey. So it's doing more of what I'm doing now and doing it better. Um, I, you know, I, I am looking at ways in which I can be even more visible and, you know, really drive forward DNI initiatives. You never know. Um, yeah. I, I might end up in a global role. You never know. Yeah. I might end up with a book. I yeah, don't know. I I'm know. Have to come and get some tips from you, Sally. You've written oh, yeah, so I'm books. there. I'm there. Just do it. I'll read it. I'll read it. You've given so much great advice. I want to see that book coming out. <laughs> so you just, you know, you've got to watch this space. You've got to watch this space. Well, interestingly then, you know, you say watch this space, but what, what would you like to see in the GC space? Mm. You know, what would be exciting to see 
here in England yeah. for us to be doing? Because I think it's a really growing sector. And do you think we can have a mass of more diverse people? Yeah, Sally, I think we, we, we already touched on it. And it's, it's just seeing more of that diverse representation within the GC space and actually more collaboration. You know, I want to see more law firms, you know, get over the fear of criticism and just be more collaborative, right, yeah. in, you know, sharing data, in, in working with their clients to really change the dynamics um, um, for, for our industry. So it's more, it's more diversity, it's more allies, it's more allies. I can't advocate for allies enough. I mean, certainly in my career journey, I had many allies, I still have them now. And they really are the ones who speak for you in the rooms that you don't get that presence to. So it's, it's, it's asking and, 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 you know, waving that flag for, for more allies uh, who, are, who are committed, really, really committed to driving forward uh, DEI in our industry. So that's how I'd like to see things change, you know, for my kids, you know, when, yeah. when, when they're yeah. old enough to look into the legal world but they don't see it as being too much in favour of one certain demographic or that things are a little more um, evened out. I know that that is, you know, very, very wishful, but it's a wish uh, and I still, you know, would do everything I can. However, little the ripple, it's still a ripple um, and it's, it's, it's working towards that, that ultimate goal. Absolutely. Well, y- you mentioned your kids yes. and um, I know that there was an incident at school Oh, yes. Yeah, with your daughter. Okay, can you just share that with me? Because I love the way you dealt with this yeah. and, and you know, the rainbow. And we all have these incidents. Certainly I have had, I'm sure many people yeah. um, else have had it in one shape or another, you know, working mums. Can you just share that? What happened? And, and that brilliant way that you used the rainbow to deal with it. So just to set the scene, um, I live in a village. I, I you know, it's a, there's not very many minority ethnics in the village, particularly at the time uh, when we first started living in the village. Yes. Um, and so um, this was a few years back, say six, seven years back. My daughter was five. She was attending school. She was one of two minority ethnics in the school. And she said she came home after school one day and she was telling me about her day and she said she was in a playground and this one girl was talking about her birthday party and she turned around to my daughter and she said well you're not invited to my birthday party because no brown people are allowed and of course my daughter when she said that to me I mean my immediate reaction was what did she really say that because of course you know speaking to a five-year-old I'm thinking did she really say that come on she was like yes mom and she said uh, I'm not allowed to a party because no brown people are allowed. I said, are you sure she said that? She says, yes. She said, yeah. And she looked at me. I'll never forget the sort of the look on her face because, you know, my family is very diverse. I never thought to have a conversation with her about yeah. race and about the color of her skin. And, and I had to stop myself, Sally. I've used this phrase before. I use it again. I had to stop myself from turning into the Hulk yeah. because I thought she's watching me. And you know when you get that moment when kids are just studying you, right? Yeah. And she was watching me and she was watching for my reaction. I don't know where this came from, but I just turned down. I said, well, look, I said, Farah, I said, why is a rainbow so beautiful? And she immediately perks up and she's like, oh, because it's got lots and lots of colors in it. And I was like, exactly. I said, a rainbow is beautiful because it's got lots and lots of colors in it. I said, can you imagine if a rainbow was just one color? And she was like, oh, it would be so boring. I was like, exactly. I said, the rainbow, I said, it would be so boring. You wouldn't stop and stare at it. You wouldn't wow at it. And I said, I said, the world, I said, is, is a very beautiful place because, you know, there's so many different people of different colors, different color eyes, different color hair, different color skin in it. And unfortunately, not everyone can see the beauty of the world because of the mix and the different colors um, in the world. And of course, she's like instantly she's perked up and she's like, you know, because of course we're talking about something colorful. She brightens up and she's like (laughs) straight on to planning her own birthday party. And she was like, mommy, we are going to invite all of the colors of the world to to my birthday party. And and mommy, you know, we must invite the Ninja Turtles because, you know, they're green. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we're going to invite the Ninja Turtles to your birthday party. No problem at all. Now. 
obviously I had that conversation with her and I ta- taught her about the diversity of the world. And then, you know, separately went to the school and I was like, hey, yes. this has happened. Okay, I'm not going to give you a name, but you need to do something about this. Um, and I was very impressed by the school's response, actually, because you know, instantly, well, almost instantly, you know, she was coming back home and she was talking about, oh, we had this diversity day. We did this and it's about respect and it's this and that. And I thought, good. I mean, I ended up actually on the diversity committee of the school, which was, you know, I was like, I want to make sure you guys are doing the stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay? Exactly. Yeah. Come to me for ideas. I'm willing to share. Um, but then I've got to share this, Sally, that I also learned from her because a couple of weeks later, I took her to Toys R Us when Toys R Us still had shops. And, you know, we, we had a star chat chart at home where she would get a star for, you know, she's made oh, her yeah. bed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember if she's been good, we go to the shops and we'll buy her a present. And so we're at Toys R Us and she turns around to me and she says, she'd like to get this girl a birthday present. And I was like, no, what are you doing buying her a present? And she insisted. She's like, no, mommy, I want to buy her a present. I say, no, 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 no. I'm not buying her a present. She was horrible to you. So you're not buying her a present. And she was just like, no, I want to buy her a present. I said, why do you want to buy her a present? Because in my head, I'm thinking, is this child trying to bribe her way into the party? Because if she is, I fail. <laughs> I have failed as a parent. Um, anyway, she insists. And she's like, I want to buy a present, mommy. And I said, why do you want to buy her a present? She says, because it's kind. And I said, okay, well, who am I to stand in the way of kindness? Go ahead, go, yeah. go, go, and, go and pick a present for her. And she marches over to the Barbie doll aisle, as she often did. And she picks out a black Barbie. Wow. Okay. And I'm like, why, why have you picked this toy <laughs> um and she said she said because i want her to know that it's okay to play with someone who looks like me um and in that instant i thought well hey you know what i've just learned from her that you never stop trying to edify to 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 enlighten and to show just help people understand yes um that to see and to embrace diversity and the positivities that come with with diversities. I actually learned from her at that stage because of course, you know, as humans and as we grow yeah. up, we become a little hardened and yes. you know, you forget about, you know, I mean the innocence of the child. She was just wanting to buy a present for her. And she'd obviously gone past not being invited. She'd forgiven her. I mean that present probably ended up in the bin, right? Um but it, it was exactly it doesn't matter. It was it was a lesson for me and and will always stay with me uh, that you know whatever the obstacle you just you don't stop yeah I mean wow that's really just to take a moment to reflect on that it's so powerful and you know you going on that committee even we can have diversity but it it needs to be inclusive and that's what inclusion and equity is isn't it so yeah I I really love that I suppose a final question if I may Banky is this that um, you seem really confident to me um, like probably, yeah, even with your million and one rejection letters, you went to your fancy law firm, uh, and maybe you know sometimes um, confidence comes in different ways, right? Doesn't it? Yeah. Or appears in different ways. But just before we started this podcast, you were like, "Oh my God, my imposter syndrome is going through the roof here," and I'm thinking you're talking to you know barely five foot uh, short black woman um, here uh, who's had a long here. Day. Yeah, see, there we are. Uh, I'm not sure what imposter syndrome uh, is there, but I, I wondered, you know, because I often say everyone suffers from imposter syndrome, men, mm. anybody of different sizes and shape, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's just that we women, maybe we talk about it a little bit more. But I just wanted to ask you, you know, do you get imposter syndrome and how do you cope with it? Because I get imposter syndrome all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's how we deal with it because sometimes occasionally it can act as a catalyst, can't it? Yes. Uh, and maybe that's why I think, oh, you're confident all the time. Mm-hmm. Of course, nobody can be confident all the time. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe there are some people, and if you're one of those people who's confident all the time, good for you. Share it with the rest of us. But how do you deal with your imposter syndrome when it comes? Well, you, you know, it, it just is. It's always there, but I notice it's there when I'm doing something challenging. Yeah, and yeah. something new yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so that's where I get the comfort to tell my imposter syndrome. I know before the, we started the call, I'd said, my imposter syndrome is on stage. It's dancing with maracas going, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, and of course, you know, I, I think I shared with you, Sally, when I, when, when I uh, got the invite to be on your podcast, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. She's emailed the wrong person, right? <laughs> um, uh, this is Sally Penny we're talking about here. Um, but it's, no error, no error. I see your work. <laughs> I see what you're doing, and that's what I said to you. Nope, you're the right person. <laughs> but it's 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 basically um, you know getting to a point where you realise that the reason you have the nerves and the anxiety is because you're doing something new. You're doing something that is challenging and stretching, and just taking comfort in the fact that right, okay, yes, there's two ways this could go. You could succeed at it, or you could fail. But if you fail, you can always pick yourself up and fix it and learn and just take the lessons. You know, the success is all about how you overcome failure, right? So it's it's taking stock and getting to that point where I'm like, okay, I hear you. I see you doing your dance, but it's okay. This is something new. This is something challenging. And we'll be okay. We'll be okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, Banky. I started this podcast because I wanted to showcase leaders in law. I wanted to hear voices and role models, certainly, that I didn't see nor hear. And I wanted to share that with the thousands who listen to this podcast. And you've certainly done that. It's been wonderful hearing your journey, what you're doing uh, at CBRE. And I can't wait to hear and see what the future holds uh, in respect of your career. Thank you so much, Banky. Thank you, Sally. It's been a pleasure. A big thank you to Banky Odunaiki for talking law me, Sally Penn. And thanks again to CBRE for supporting this episode. Do visit CBRE.com to find out more about the work they do across the world. If you'd like to support Talking Law, then please get in touch. You can find me and follow me on Twitter at SallyPenny1 or search for Sally Penny on LinkedIn or Instagram. Do make sure you catch up with previous episodes of Talking Law, where you can hear my interviews with guests such as experienced litigator Harold Braco from Adelshaw Goddard, LLP, and QC Sheree Blair. Before I go, a reminder about the annual dinner. And do watch my TED Talk at TED.com. Thank you to our production team, Sam Walker, Michael Blades, at What Goes On Media. I'm Sally Penny MBE. Bye for now.